two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Low Orbits, the podcast mini-sode in which two writers watch some TV. Welcome to another episode of Low Orbits. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. This week, we're taking a look at Tomorrow is Yesterday, an episode of the original series of Star Trek featuring time travel, which will be fun to talk about. An absolute favorite episode from when I was a kid. I probably was 10 when I saw it in syndication. This was not a real memorable one for me. This would not be on my favorites list. Although, having rewatched it last night, it's okay. It's a decent episode. But how can you resist the coolness of the Star Trek universe has come into my world? Yeah, which they did several times. And a movie. Which kind of dilutes the specialness of this particular episode. Yeah. I don't recall whether this was the first time that they traveled back to the present or if it was the second time because they had another episode where they were trying to thwart a missile launch or something. I think they were saving an Apollo launch from being sabotaged. Yeah. I mean, there was some weird character who was like a Doctor Who sort of a character. And Terry Gar. And Terry Gar. And did you know, I know we're going off track, but did you know that there was talk of him and her having their own series with those characters? Yeah, I think that was the intention, was they created a quasi-pilot episode for a side TV show. I think the old TV term is backdoor pilot. Backdoor pilot. Whichever one was first, I don't know. So the, basically the plot of this one is that the... Enterprise runs into a black star, which, is that a black hole? I don't know what that is, but it's a black star. That is an old term for black hole. Okay, yeah. So it hits the black star or wanders too close to it and gets hurled across the galaxy at a high speed, and that causes them to go back in time. Fortunately, straight towards Earth. Well, they were headed in that direction to begin with. Well, I'm glad they said that. And let me just say right here, this is the beginning of a lot of really terrible science on this show. Not to shit all over your favorite episode, but there was so much bad science in this particular episode. I will admit that. And when I saw it today, it wasn't the adult me enjoying it. It was that remaining little bit of 10-year-old me no, I get that. that was enjoying. We're, we're going to have a couple other future episodes where the 10-year-old Patrick is going to be like, oh, this was so cool when I saw it the first time. So they wind up back on Earth, and for whatever reason, they're in the atmosphere flying around in the clouds, and they have a convenient malfunction, which they have a lot of convenient malfunctions oh, on yeah. the show, of the engines in this case, and they're trying to get back up into orbit, trying to figure out what they're going to do, and then a... Air Force pilot chases them, and they, for whatever reason, put a tractor beam on him. I think it was to push him away. Well, that causes his ship to fall apart, and they have to emergency transport him onto the Enterprise. And now they've created a time conundrum where he's seen too much. And of course, the reason he saw too much is Kirk goes, Hey, come on, let's take a tour of the ship. Let me show you everything about this ship. Feel free to look around, Captain. I think you'll find it interesting. Ugh. It's like, that's the reason you could have left him in the transporter room until you were able to get him off the ship. But no, the first thing Kirk does is, hey, let's take you on a tour of the ship and show you everything there is to know about us. And if you had just beamed him home from there, he would have had a story just like any other UFO story. Like immediately beam him down to the crash site of the airplane. He's like, for a second there, I thought I was on some other ship. 
and then I wasn't, and I was here, and my ship was all crashed, but I'm okay. So maybe I ejected just in time. I don't know. Sorry, ran on oxygen and hallucinated a yeah. spaceship. He would have instantly solved the problem. No one would believe that he was on an alien ship, and he was only there for 15 seconds, not enough time to really understand exactly what happened to him. I and mean, it could have been a hallucination. So, no, Kirk creates the time paradox by being an idiot and taking him on a tour of the ship. So that's like science problem number one or plot hole logic number one. Then they spend a whole bunch of time going, what are we going to do? We can't send him back. He knows too much. He could change the future of history and cause us to cease to exist. It's the old time paradox. By the way, in this episode, they go by the set of rules of time travel and changes that allows you to do whatever the fuck you want to. Yes. It makes no sense. There's a lot of whatever the fuck in this episode. So then they have this elaborate plot where Sulu and Kirk beam down to the Air Force Base to steal the wing footage from the wing camera and the telemetry from their giant computer from the 1960s. And Kirk gets captured. Then he has to be rescued. I mean, it's this really elaborate going back and forth down to Earth and coming back up to the ship and going back down to Earth. And they wind up transporting and kidnapping an Air Force sergeant. Oh, yeah, he had the communicator. Yeah, he had the communicator and got accidentally transported. So they compounded their problem. And because he's only a lowly sergeant, okay, this is where I really got chapped. Because that guy's just a dumb old sergeant. He never leaves the transporter room. Whereas the officer, he got a <laughs> tour of the ship, you know, but the dumb Air Force sergeant has to eat a replicated bowl of chicken noodle soup in the transporter room. I think the point was, to not complicate the writing, he was in shock. He spent some time just standing there frozen. Because he's a dumb sergeant. He doesn't have the brains to comprehend that an officer would have. <laughs> yes. And then there is so much bad science. So the resolution of this whole thing is they have to fly into the sun and then fly away from the sun really quickly to go forward in time. You travel back in time by flying towards the sun and then snapping back and you travel to the future by doing the exact same thing. So how does the sun know which way you want to go? Science! I want to see them end up in Renaissance Italy because they went the wrong way once. That's what should have happened. So they have to have this plan where they transport the pilot and the Air Force sergeant precisely to the exact place they were before they were abducted. Like into themselves, which doesn't make a lot of sense. The pilot is transported into the cockpit of his jet, replacing himself that was there somehow, magically. Science. And it has to be done at exactly that one moment. And somebody doesn't remember all of this stuff. Science. And meanwhile, they're flying at warp 10 and the ship's rocking back and forth and the lights are going on and off. And Spock at one point goes, the computer doesn't work anymore. And it's like, well, then how are you going to do this highly precise maneuver if your computer's not working and you have no control over the ship? But no problem because science, it works. And then they fly happily back to the precise moment in time when they left the 23rd century in the exact place at the exact time where if they would have been off by a day, if they would have arrived a day early at that point, there would have been two Enterprises, two Kirks, two crews existing at the same place in the same time, creating a whole other paradox of itself. 
But they were able to precisely do the first thing and then precisely land back in the future exactly where they needed to be because of science. Okay, first of all, I was fully expecting them to do the smart thing on the arrival. Why couldn't they have shown up in their own time a month late? And you have a dramatic moment where you turn on the subspace radio and you have frantic calls saying, where the hell are you? You've been missing for a month. Yeah, that would have been cool. That would have been kind of a cool little thing they could have added. And it wouldn't have created a time paradox. Yeah, it's exactly what they did in the final countdown with the USS Nimitz. Yes, that's right. You're right. And that was kind of cool. Now, second of all, huge plot hole. Somehow in all these machinations, the ship that the Air Force pilot is tracking just disappears. Right. To me, it means that when they wrote it, they had some vague idea that, oh, they're changing the past as they go by. So therefore, their ship is the one that's going warp 10, and the one in Earth's atmosphere no longer needs to exist, which is blatantly stupid to start with. But if that's your rule, by the way, time travel needs rules. Yes, it does. Why not just take those two people, and instead of trying to beam them into themselves and make two-headed monsters, murder them. If you're changing the past to where they didn't get picked up, then you can murder the versions you have with you. Yes, there you go. Push them out of airlock. Yeah. Problem solved. Or transport them into the middle of space. Transporting them to the middle of the space is the best way to murder them because you can fool them. And you say, okay, we're going to transport you back to Earth. Get on the platform. Bye. And you just transport them out into the middle of space. Yeah, but you're standing on the transporter pad. Right. And you look over to the control panel. Why is that ensign crying? (laughs) So when they were trying to figure out how to solve all of these problems with overly complicated plots, the writer in me thought, oh, wait a minute. This is 1968. Why didn't you just take the Enterprise tell the crew, I'm sorry, we're trapped in the past. You're never going to be able to see your loved ones again. I'm very sorry. That's terrible. But what we're going to do is we're going to take the ship and we're going to fly to Vulcan. Because I'm assuming the Vulcans were there with their faster than light technology, waiting for the human race to develop to the point where they could join the Federation. Yeah. If the Vulcans discovered humans in the early 21st century, then surely they had only 40 years earlier. Yeah, they, they, were the, they were the same Vulcans that were there 200 years later. So why not just fly to Vulcan, show up and go, hey, you don't know us, but we're from 200 years in the future and we're here to rejoin the Federation on behalf of the planet Earth and, you know, get on with our lives. But would that create a, like 180 time paradoxes? It depends on what rules you decided on. I think... The Vulcans would imprison them and then use all this knowledge from 200 years in the future to become the super smart science-y race. That would be a good episode because the Vulcans were kind of assholes. Kirk has to somehow escape the Vulcan prison. Vulcans' enemies would be fun. Obviously, that would have changed the whole series and that... Well, yeah. We couldn't do that in 1968. You had to take the more stupid way out because you had to. I mean, seriously, it's 1968. You're barely hanging on. No, this is a first season episode. That's right. So you you have to take the dumb way out that makes the story happen. Though, to add on to the end of what you said, surely the Vulcans would be able to freeze everyone for 200 years. Yeah, now see, that, that eliminates the possibility of a time paradox. So why not do that? You know, And then you would wake up and your loved ones would still be there and it would be 200 years later and you can get on with your life. There wouldn't be another Enterprise and crew duplicating you. So... 
Yeah, that's the best answer. That's the best way to resolve this particular story, of course, which they would never do. Well, the budget would never cover it. Extra sets, you'd have to have like a row of cubicles for everyone to get frozen in. What they would do is what any cheap TV show of the time would do. They would show the captain and three other people being frozen. Yeah. And then just hand wave the rest of the crew is doing the same thing in another chamber. All the discussion is them sitting around a desk somewhere. Well, like that other episode, we spend all this time on this minor and this woman falling in love and deciding to get married. And what about the other two? Oh, yeah, they're married. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot of hand waves in the old Star Trek. Any other thoughts on your favorite episode? Um... Other than the fact that it took place in modern day, was there anything else about it you really liked? I don't know why, but as a kid, I always loved time travel stories. I mean, I really liked them. So it's not just that Star Trek came to our planet in roughly our time, but the time travel aspect has always fascinated me. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Even though this was a bad (laughs) version of time travel. It was, and you question where they get some of their ideas like the slingshot around the sun i always thought came from the idea of if you travel faster than light you go back in time now the enterprise travels faster than light but then again they use the word warp so maybe there's a difference between warping space and traveling in normal space faster than light it does make me wonder though if whoever wrote the script had a lot of science fiction experience Well, they did not. It was written by D.C. Fontana, who wound up writing some of the episodes. She's a producer. Matter of fact, she was the first woman to write a script for the original Star Trek. And she's not a science fiction writer. So clearly, science was not her forte. But to be fair, probably half the other writers that wrote on this show didn't have much familiarity with science either. You know, one of the ones we watched last night was written by Gene Kuhn, who was a TV writer and written Westerns and all kinds of other cop shows, everything else. Interestingly, though, you got the first script by a female writer, and it has a couple fairly sexist moments in it. There's the early scene where Kirk is giving a tour of the ship to the Air Force captain, and this attractive woman in a short Star Trek skirt walks by and the Air Force captain stops and spins around to ogle her as she goes by and they play the sexy music. And, And he says, a woman? A woman? A woman? You know, that was very 1960s right there. And then there's the comedy bit where they get the computer reprogrammed and it's the voice of a very sexy woman who every time she talks to Kirk she's like yes dear okay darling and Kirk is very annoyed at this so that's very interesting that that stuff was written by a woman you gotta wonder if that was like she felt like she had to put stuff like that in there in order to be accepted to be quote-unquote one of the boys you know I don't know who knows yeah as for the writing of time travel It's just assumed by so many people that you can just twist it to whatever you feel like. You can, but to me, that's not good science fiction. If you're writing a mainstream thriller that involves time travel, like what was that Jean-Claude Van Damme movie where he's a time cop? Time cop. Who gives a shit about science in a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie? They did pretty good in that one. Yeah, but I'm just saying, if you're writing science fiction... To me, it's exactly like faster-than-light travel. There's no clear theory 
that is provable or accepted as to how it's possible to travel faster than light. It's all highly theoretical. Many of the theories that are out there right now will be disproven over the next 10, 20, 50 years. Time travels the same way. It's highly theoretical. And the idea of warping is just a vague concept. It is not a theory at all. Well, there's some specificity. There's some physicists who have said, well, this is one way it might happen. What is it, the El Kaburi drive? El Kaburi drive, I believe. That's one. You know, so there's some science behind a lot of these ideas. What you need to do as a science fiction writer is pick one of those theories and just say, okay, that's what I'm going with, but then adhere to the logic of it. You have to create a time travel logic with rules, and you have to follow those rules and be consistent as a writer throughout there and use those rules to create complications and to put your characters in danger or present them with a quandary of having to make a tough choice. Like in Back to the Future, they had a consistent set of rules, more or less, that became a major part of the plot, especially in the third movie. Right. To me, getting the science more or less right in a science fiction story is like you're writing a Western. If you're going to write a Western, you have to do enough historical research to not put stuff in there that's incongruous. You can't have Gatling guns all over the place because Gatling guns were not widely used until the 1880s or or later. How many times have you seen a historically accurate device that you knew was insanely expensive in that year. And Gatling Guns is a great example. There's been a bunch of movies that show people in the Civil War shooting Gatling Guns. There were like five Gatling Guns in the entire Union Army during the Civil War, and they were rarely ever used. So it's stuff like that. You have to get the little details right. You have to do the research. In science fiction, you have to at least be aware of the science and to try to adhere to it. And you can hand wave a little bit here and there. Sometimes you almost have to hand wave a bit, but you have to at least make an effort, I think. Yeah, at least be internally consistent. Right. Any other thoughts? I think not. All right, that's it for another Low Orbits. Tune in next week for another episode of Unknown Orbits. Please follow us on your favorite podcasting outlet and like this episode if you enjoyed it. It really does help us. And tune in for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky.